0: Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Omar, and Pradeep Dasigi. All right, today our guests are Verena Riza uh, from Harriet Watt University and Andre Dusek from Charles University in Prague. Verena and Andre, it's good to have you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for
2: inviting us. Yeah, hi. Thanks for inviting us.
0: Today we wanted to talk about. I guess what, what I think of as data-to-text generation, so like natural language generation, when you have some kind of structured stuff that you want to generate from. Uh, and I think, Verena and Andre, you have more insight into this than I do, and so I'm going to let you describe uh, more clearly what exactly we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, I think um, natural language generation is sort of a popular term nowadays, and um, to define it, it's it's a bit of a moving target because it changed – its meaning over the past couple of years. I think currently people understand natural language generation as anything which can be modeled as a conditioned or constrained um, language model. So ranging from image captioning to summarization, machine translation or even style transfer. And what we meant when we set up our E2E natural language challenge was the task of generating from um, meaning representations.
0: Right. So it's Constrained in a particular way, not just given. I I guess given a, a structured input, right? So you gave examples of generating from an image, which is like I have some contextual generation. Machine translation is is also contextual generation, in that I have some foreign language sentence that I want to translate into some other language. But you're saying what you're interested in here is where the context is a particular kind. That you say is a meaning representation. That word is a little bit overloaded. I guess people might think of abstract meaning representation (AMR), which is a, which is a particular kind of thing. I think you're you're thinking of something a little bit simpler. Do you want to tell us what kind of meaning representation you're talking about here?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's it's a textual meaning representation. So here it's very loosely structured. So we are talking about dialogue acts, um, which are usually defined as some sort of intent with arguments. So, for example, the intent could be inform the user about something and the arguments um, is something like type equals restaurant and price equals cheap or something like that. And that then can be realized as um, a cheap restaurant or a restaurant in the lower price range and so on. Um, So, something which is, you know, described via text um, and loosely structured, this is different from what people used to understand as, um, data to text generation. So this, this term was originally coined by Ehud Reiter back in 2007, and it meant, um, non-linguistic input data, such as sensor data or even, um, event logs and things like that. Whereas now when people say data to text generation, they include all sort of structured meaning representations, such as um, table data, knowledge graphs, AMRs, all these type of um, underspecified dialogue acts which we were using.
0: So I, I feel like it's probably familiar to a bunch of people why you might want to use some particular kinds of contexts in generation. Like if I have an image, I might want to describe what's in the image and there are some pretty clear, like, visually impaired use cases of this, or if my context is a foreign language sentence, there are some pretty clear use cases for why I might want to generate given that. So what, in what circumstances might someone want to actually use a contextual generation system where my context is this kind of semi structured, uh, meaning representation?
1: So in our case, the motivation was really within the context of, um, spoken dialogue systems, which traditionally come in the, modular architectures so where you've got the natural language understanding module and that outputs a um you know dialogue act specification and that gets passed into the dialogue manager and then the dialogue manager decides on what to say next and that again is on that abstract level of a dialogue act so then the nlg component as part of a dialogue system traditionally takes this dialogue act representation and Translates it into natural language. So that was our motivation for using that specific type of meaning representation.
0: Yeah. And I guess specifically, if you think of imagine next generation Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant that does a better job actually responding to you, having a conversation that's not really very conversational at this point. But I guess your challenge that we will, we will talk about in more detail here in a little bit. You, you could say it's like trying to drive us toward a future where we have more conversational assistance, essentially. Am I understanding this right?
2: Yeah, yeah. But even the current version basically, you know, has an NLG component there that starts with some kind of meaning representation and then transforms it to text, which is then re- read out aloud by a text-to-speech component. So it's, it's basically the, the same case here.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, totally fair. I guess I was my I, I have a Google Assistant, a, a bunch of Google Home devices in my house, and they, my use of them is not very conversational at this point. But
2: yeah, yeah, but it, it still involves some kind of natural language generation. Even though I suppose in in case of Google Assistant nowadays, it's probably just some you know handwritten templates filled with some some values, and you know we're trying to use more machine learning here. Yep. Okay. Great.
1: Yeah, I think also for, for dialogue systems you currently have these two different architectures, right? So one is based on this notion of dialogue acts and it's all modularized. So you basically um you've got um NLU a uh, dialogue management and an NLG module and they're all sort of past these um communicate with with each other on the symbolic level of dialogue acts. Whereas on the other hand you've got these completely end-to-end systems which basically treat the whole process as a encoder-decoder model and they don't require this dialogue act annotation, right? They are more on this open-ended conversational level. So that they can handle what we call open domain conversations, or all sorts of chit-chat, whereas the traditionally the the more modular dialogue system, they're they're task-based systems. So the dialogue acts are really um, there to constrain the system to a particular task and make sure the system stays on topic on that particular task and also conveys exactly that information as specified in the dialogue acts and as chosen by the the dialogue manager. Whereas these end-to-end systems, they don't have so tight control over what is said, Right, so that that can be positive because you basically can find an answer to almost anything um, what the user says, but it's not always the best answer. Right, so it's known that these systems often have um, very underspecified or general general answers. Um, so things like "I don't know" or you know "tell me more about that" or "I'm sorry." Or on the other hand, they can also produce um, very inappropriate answers, um, which you know fit the context, but you don't really want to have in a commercial system.
0: Right, and in chit-chat kinds of applications, you could think maybe maybe this kind of end-to-end thing might work. But if you imagine any kind of system that interacts with a database or any any kind of external software system at all, um, like say. Tell me about the restaurants that are nearby, uh, or, or like, fi- find me something. And then the dialogue manager issues a query and then gets some result back.
1: So it's a way of knowledge grounding. Basically, these dialogue acts help the system to, you know, ground in a knowledge base which has some sort of meaning representation to, to query.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, it, if you assume that the dialogue system is interacting with anything else, then you, you're going to be in a situation where there is some kind of structured. Or where you have some structured context to generate language from, right?
2: Yeah, it's 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 really hard to to do it otherwise. Basically, I mean, the, 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 there are systems trying to you know have a neural net that has like an attention mechanism over all possible entries in a database, but it's it's mostly just like toy examples so far. It it doesn't doesn't work that well.
0: Yeah, I I do a bunch of work in this kind of space where you're interacting with with a database or something. We typically don't close the loop and generate something after that, but yeah, like an end-to-end system that does all of its database interaction inside of a neural net is like impossible. Like this is this is not going to happen and probably isn't the even the right way of thinking about this. So yeah, if, if we have a dialogue system that is interacting with something else, we will always have this kind of setting. Uh, I, I can think of a few others where you might want, like contextual generation, where the context is some kind of structure. I know for a long time people have been looking at, um, for instance, generating baseball game summaries or basketball game summaries or, or other kinds of like what happened in the stock market today. I, I don't know, like you could imagine um, some system that tries to generate a, a report for human consumption based on some kind of structured data, right?
2: Yeah, it's basically. Whenever you have some kind of machine process data and you want to present it to people in in a natural way, one way of doing that is is using natural language generation okay, great.
0: Um, so I think we've got a decent handle on like what problem we're talking about and why people might care about it. So what makes this hard why Why is it more challenging to generate from structured contexts than other kinds of contexts
2: well like the first part about this being hard is is actually getting the structured data. At least, for example, for for a task like like we've done with the E2E Energy challenge, where we had a, a lot of uh, restaurant recommendations, basically, you know, you don't need like millions of training examples to to make the system work, but you still need thousands. Like in our case, we collected a data set of like 50,000 examples. And getting that many examples to, to train a, a machine learning model to, to work with that is tricky to do with like, you know, sufficient quality because you it's too much for you to write it yourself and you wouldn't be getting enough variety. And then if you use uh, methods like crowdsourcing, then, then you need to really check what crowdsourcing workers are entering and and you basically always end up with with a certain amount of, of noise if you if you want to scrape data from the web it might not be exactly what you want you know it might be slightly out of out of domain and also any any external source can be potentially dangerous i mean there there might be some swearing or this kind of stuff you basically don't want the users to to hear so that's that's one problem getting the data at all and and the other is somehow representing the data inside neural nets because i guess the the more complex or the the more difficult the the structure of your data is the the more complex this becomes so using relatively simple meaning representations as we did in the e challenge where it was basically uh, mostly like attributes and values. That's relatively fine. You can just, you know, arrange them in a sequence and, and the typical neural net models are able to handle sequences pretty well. On the other hand, if you have graphs or, or tables, you, you need to have some, some more complex mechanisms to work with that. And also if you have more structure, it can it can even help you. It can it can get you better results. But you still you need a more complex model and it becomes more expensive to to collect the data or to build up the training data set. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Great. Yeah just just to paraphrase to be sure I understood it sounds like you're
0: saying there are two problems here. I guess the first one I hadn't even thought about, which is really interesting. Data collection in itself for other kinds of contexts uh, like images or foreign language sentences. We have pretty natural ways to get reasonable, very large data, data sets. But if I'm, if I have some abstract meaning representation, these don't just exist everywhere that you can just, just scrape them. You have to, you have to figure out how to get them. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. And then modeling, yeah, is, is really interesting. Presumably you have graphs. You, you could take your structured representation and represent it as a graph and then do some kind of graph encoding, perhaps. I think we should push off the modeling discussion until a little bit later. But yeah, it's hard just from a modeling perspective, given this structured thing, it's not trivial to think of how to model it. We'll, we'll hopefully have, have time to talk about what people have done uh, a little bit later in the discussion. What about like faithfulness? So, so there, there are even problems of, of like, I'm supposed to generate something specific. How do I make sure that the model is generating what it's supposed to? So this is this is, I guess, partly a modeling problem and also partly an evaluation problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that was actually one of the main results and findings of the E2E generation challenge, was that the models we we've been looking at pretty much all had a problem with these so-called pathologies. So we had hallucinations, which you know the model hallucinates content which isn't there in the meaning representations or omission, so the meaning representation specifies something, but the model actually doesn't generate it, or also, you know, repetitions, just saying things twice. And that's obviously really bad in the context of um, task-based dialogue systems, because, um, you know, they, they have to be faithful, these um, generation modules. So um, So, yeah, as you said, that's a a challenge for both um, evaluation and and also for the modeling perspective. So what people did in the E2E challenge was basically beam re-ranking, checking whether all the elements of the MR was covered by the outputs, doing actually quite simple things like regex ma- matching on the, the outputs that generated with the MR, um, the meaning representation. And then for evaluation, it was more tricky. Um, so we also used some... Um, you know, sort of pattern matching, but um, to evaluate the, the semantic correctness. But this is something which, for example, blue doesn't cover that well. So traditional uh, evaluation metrics are like word overlap based, like blue um, and fo- follow on um, similar metrics, which um, won't tell you whether actually your model is faithful or not.
0: Yeah, I guess th- now that I think about this a little bit more, this isn't a different problem from what you face in other generation problems. Like if my context is an image or a foreign language sentence, I still want to have something that's faithful and that actually captures what my context was. It's just here it's discrete and structured in some sense. Maybe that makes it easier because like, if I have an image you mentioned methods that I could do like regex matching or beam re-ranking kinds of stuff to be sure that I actually captured what was in the meaning representation. It's not really clear to me, Without having thought about this a lot more, um, how you would do this with an image, and so maybe you actually have it a little bit easier. I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think about this?
1: I agree that you know string matching obviously makes it easier, and we're dealing both. The MR is usually you know specified in terms of s- strings, and the output is s- specified in terms of strings.
2: I suppose this also comes with the fact that what we're dealing with usually is is generating stuff for some kind of limited domain i mean here we had restaurant recommendations or you can have like you know basketball summaries so you kind of know the topic and 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 that's why you can even work with some kind of string matching because for like machine translation typically you're expecting to translate any sentence in the source language so It would be pretty hard. I suppose you could, you could check with some kind of handwritten dictionary, but it would still probably be quite tricky. And, and, and I mean, even, even in our case, it's, it's not perfect. You, you're not able to capture all possible patterns of expressing that a restaurant is cheap, for example, even, even if you try. But it's, it's much easier than, than for like a general domain. And I guess with
0: a structured representation, it's a pretty clear, limited scope for what you're supposed to be generating whereas like image captioning for instance there's there are so many bits uh that that are in the image than so many different levels of granularity that you might want to describe what's in the image and so it's not really clear what you should be generating at least in this case you have a pretty clear task probably most of the time maybe there are some cases where you don't i guess like Say I'm trying to summarize what the stock market did today or I'm trying to summarize a basketball game. Maybe I'd have a similar problem. But for your dialogue generation, it's probably pretty well scoped, I think.
1: Yeah, I think – There's also a difference here whether we talk about only surface um, realization. So in our case, we assume that we don't do content selection, right? So we said you always should generate everything specified in the meaning representation. Whereas other tasks, you might not want to do that. You have to first select what you want to talk about. And then this automatic string matching obviously becomes much harder because, you know, it's actually defined by the task that you maybe should not be talking about everything specified in the MR.
0: Right. Great. This is, this is really good. Um, so just to summarize the, the problems that we've talked about are getting data, modeling stuff and some similar problems to other, other generation tasks about like, how do you make sure that the model is faithful and how do you evaluate that the model is faithful? I think we can move on to what people have actually done. We've been kind of skirting around this uh end-to-end natural language generation challenge that you both set up. Do you want to tell us about what exactly that is and what you did?
1: Uh yeah, sure. So so this was a task um self Andre and our colleague um Yekaterina Novikova um set up in 2017. So um, a couple of years ago now, and the, the main motivation for this challenge was really that at the time, neural generation was pretty new, right? So and there were a couple of systems coming out around 2015, which did like neural end-to-end generation from these sort of abstract meaning representations such as dialogue acts, right? At the time, they were still very much limited to very short formulaic utterances. So something which pretty much sounded like templates. So, um, we wanted to know, can this actually scale to something which sounds a bit more natural and which is also longer, right? So not just short utterances, but, um, more complicated, um, lexically more rich utterances, which who have, which have more complicated discourse structure and so on.
2: They're more diverse as well. Yes, exactly.
1: So moving away from these very small limited data sets. And in order to do that, we collected a, um, new data set um, using crowdsourcing and in order to get that type of diverse data we showed people pictures so instead of telling them here's our textual meaning representation can you please talk about it we we showed them a pictorial representation and um, I should add that this was in the restaurant domain so this is a domain which you know people working on task based dialogue systems use a lot um, because it's small and well defined and in our case we were lucky because we were able to to, you know, produce pictures telling the user this is the task, so.
0: Can you give some examples of what, like, I, when you say restaurant domain, I can imagine a few different things like booking or ordering or or a few different things, so what exactly? Do you have some examples of what you were doing?
1: So, in our case, it was mainly informing the user of the type of restaurant, um, for example, um, restaurant name, restaurant type, cuisine, price range, and then the system would generate something like "China Red" it's a cheap Chinese restaurant in the center of town, um, close to the river, or something like that.
0: Okay, and uh, how does how do the pictures fit in here? Like you show a picture of a restaurant or something?
1: Yeah, so we would show a picture of where it's located, um, some sort of picture of the type of cuisine, um
2: kind of a schematic like, you know if you if if you want to say that restaurant is cheap you show like uh i think there was a pound sign and and you, you had like three possible and one of them was yellow and the other other were like blank so that that shows that like it's a you know low cost if you want to show i don't know uh Japanese cuisine. You show a picture of uh, sushi or, or some kind of stuff. If, you know, if you if you want to show that children are not uh, not welcome in this restaurant, you, you show a picture of of children and, and cross it out.
0: Interesting. This is really good. Like I do a bunch of work in reading comprehension these days, and when people create reading comprehension data sets, a lot of the time we you get questions that have very high word overlap with stuff that's in the paragraph itself, and what you just said was you if you don't do this you're you and you show like the meaning representations that you used which is like some kind of logical form ish representation of of like the price and all of this. Um, you're going to get people that are very, very influenced by the particular words that were chosen for the, the meaning representation. And this is this is a really interesting good way of trying to get around that. So so yes, I, I get it now. This is this is really good.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we wanted to avoid that people are basically just being primed by the meaning representation or basically just reading out what the meaning representation says. So yeah, so we collected um, this data set which then indeed Proved to be much more diverse than the the previous data set. So people used, you know, um, more diverse ways of referring to different cuisines, or saying, you know, it's a cheap restaurant, or moderately pl- priced, or um, you know, families are welcome, or you, you you can bring your children. So different ways of basically referring to um, these meaning re- underlying meaning representations. And then we released this data set. I think that was about early. Two thousand and seventeen
2: yeah um,
1: how big ba-
0: how big was it? did you say fifty thousand earlier in the conversation? is that right
1: yeah it was fifty k okay and for each meaning representation we had um I think it was between one and five um, linguistic realization
2: I think it was even more, but I mean it was like five or six thousand different meaning representations. And that was coupled with like 50,000 natural language utterances. So so on average,
0: you could say like 10-ish reference? I think it was 8 on average, as far as I remember. Okay, but but then you, you could evaluate, say like I have one meaning representation and I have like 8 references that I could compute blue against or whatever. This, this is what we're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So you released this in early 2017?
1: Yeah, so we released this and then, um, as a shared task, and we got quite a lot of interest. So we had, um, I think 16 people, different organizations participating and over 60 system submissions. So then we asked people to specify a primary system. So we had about 20 primary systems, and the primary systems we, um, determined, um, in terms of automatic metrics. So we, gave people an indication how well their systems performed in terms of automatic metrics and then they chose one or two primary systems each. Um, I think the interesting bit here was that we got a whole variety of different um, architectures. So most people at the time used um, sequence-to-sequence models, um, but we also got very competitive template-based systems. So people which actually harvested these templates in a data-driven way from our um, data, and some um, grammar-based systems, and then also some other machine learning um based systems using things like imitation learning or um rnns um or um i think there was one using um just a combination of li- uh, of um linear classifiers
0: that sounds really interesting that's really cool
1: so i think what was a real main advantage here that the, um, the manual systems were actually highly competitive. So people really put in a lot of effort. Whereas usually when you've got your manual baseline, right, you don't really put in a lot of effort because you want to show that your neural system can beat that manual baseline. Right. Whereas here, here we had people clearly, you know, building very competitive ba- um, template based system. And indeed, in the end, we were able to show that these template based systems for this very small domain actually do really well compared to the end-to-end neural approaches
0: so you had a shared task and someone won i assume like what what was the method that that performed that that actually won was it one of these template based
2: ones is that what you're saying actually not the the winner was like an ensemble of Three different seek to seek models trained in, in a quite a complex way. And, and it used like this beam re-ranking. So you know they generated multiple outputs and then checked which output is the most accurate and, and then they kind of used that one as, as the final output. So so that, that was the, the system that, that won because it was one of the best on like both fluency and and accuracy so it was like a you know v- v- very good balance in 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 the, in this respect and on the other hand there was a template based system which was like completely handwritten templates which was actually the most accurate but on the other hand you know the outputs were kind of repetitive and and longish so it wasn't as fluent as as the you know machine machine learning systems and and the other systems that used actually the template mining from data actually carried over some noise from 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 the data so they weren't completely accurate as well so they say but they they did relatively well you know compared to like much more complex machine learning based models
0: Yeah, this is interesting it it brings up a bunch of Issues even just with evaluation, right? Cause you said in there that the templated system was repetitive, which I guess implies that the seek to seek ensemble was not so repetitive. I'm having a hard time even thinking of a metric that would, that would capture this because you have to look at it across different test examples. It's not just a single one, right? This is a huge can of worms. So like, how do you, how do you evaluate this?
1: So we we looked at a bunch of different metrics, um, so automatic metrics and also in our evaluation with humans. So in terms of automatic metrics, we obviously used the standard ones like blue and then a bunch of other sort of word overlap based or similarity based metrics. And then also metrics like readability and metrics which aim to capture diversity, like how many n-grams, for example, do you have? How much lexical diversity do you have?
2: Or entropy, which also kind of gives you the a measure of diversity.
0: Entropy of the output distribution uh, or of like the tokens that were produced? Yes, yes.
2: And entropy of, of the tokens.
0: So so given all of all of the tokens that were produced across the entire dataset, you make a distribution over your over the vocabulary given what was output, and then you compute the entropy of that distribution? Yes. Okay. Interesting. And you, you mentioned readability in there. Was that a manual judgment? Or do you
2: have some automatic way to do that? I think that this one was automatic. I think there there is like a...
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to remember how we computed that.
2: Yeah,
0: there, there are some like reading level computations that you could do.
1: Yeah, there were like on these levels of...
2: There was this levels of syntactic complexity, right? This D, D level or our. That's how it was called, right?
1: Yes, that's what we did. So yeah, we also measured syntactic complexity in terms of these D levels.
2: And that's basically, I think it's it's based on like first using syntactic parsing, and then then there are some rules on top of that to to determine like how complex that sentence is. And did you ha- did you have any human evaluations?
1: Yes, indeed. So we had, first we had the automatic evaluations and then we, um, had human evaluation again, like crowdsourced human evaluations, which, you know, are, can be noisy. And we tried to determine two main factors. One is what people call fluency or, you know, how well formed it is basically. And the other was, People call it informativeness or semantic correctness, so basically how well it captures a given meaning representation. And then we had a third criteria which aimed to, you know, capture both semantic correctness and uh, um, well formed, how well formed it is and recorded quality. So people had to rate these three dimensions for for each pair they saw. So what we did, we did like a evaluation where we showed people the um, a reference. And then different system outputs, and they had to rank them relatively to each other. So that's an idea we got from how people evaluate um, machine translation. So it's determine the relative goodness of an utterance rather than asking people to score an output on a Likert scale from you know one to five, without a reference point, which I think can be pretty noisy. We gave them a reference point, and then we also didn't use a Likert scale, but we used a continuous scale. Um, So that's a method called um, magnitude estimation. So you said, okay, if the reference, for example, is 100, what would you give this utterance? So, for example, you could think that's twice as good.
2: And you saw like five of them at the same time, so you could even like distinguish among them and then, you know, give like relative scores against each other. I've seen
0: some machine translation output that is just so awful that it would be hard to even give a relative ranking. I'm assuming these methods are at least close, like that maybe this is a simpler problem. Uh, and so you have, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a lot here. I could be wrong, but uh, maybe this is easier to get close. And so it's easier to actually have people not just throw up their hands and give up when they see totally awful <laughs> translations in the first place. Right. Does this make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point that actually most of our outputs were, you know, pretty close. So, um, this relative ranking tried to capture the fact that, like, how relative to each other, there might even be some which are actually equally good. So I think that the range of output quality wasn't as diverse as you would maybe see in machine translation.
0: Okay. Did it, did the people who were doing this also see the meaning representation or just the reference?
1: Yeah, so it depends. So if when we evaluated informativeness or semantic correctness, we did show them the meaning representation, but when we asked them to evaluate um, fluency, we didn't show them the meaning representation. Okay. So again, that was an actual experiment which we run whether we should evaluate um, fluency and semantic correctness in one go or whether we should ask it separately. And we found that if you ask it separately, they're less correlated because ideally We want scores which are not highly correlated, so we can make sure we are actually assessing different dimensions here, right?
2: Right. Yeah, and this was also interesting that, you know, one of the systems that actually won on fluency was one of the worst on overall quality, where where we also showed the, you know, the meaning representation, because that system produced very nice and fluent sentences, but they were not very accurate.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I could imagine a system that, that outputs only ever one sentence, uh, and <laughs> it's perfectly fluent. And so it wins the fluency, but it has no relation at all to the meaning representation. So it is no good. Right.
2: I mean, it was not, not that bad, but <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an extreme case. Right. So do you, did you
0: or has there been since any work on automatically evaluating the informativeness or or like coverage i i'm not sure which which is the right term um but like how well you're actually completely capturing all of the information in the meaning representation it's like i you you can you can have a person do this right but uh, that's hard yeah that's takes time (laughs) and i know people have yeah people have started thinking about this in some cases for like to do it automatically but i don't really know the state of this very well
1: so I think for, you know, for our task, as we discussed previously, this is relatively straightforward because it can be done via string matching, right? I see. Okay. But for other tasks such as summarization, it's much harder to do because you've got this step of content selection, which makes it much harder to determine, you know, whether you're semantically correct with respect to um the document you're trying to summarize,
2: yeah and also your your domain is broader so you you yeah you're not able to to get all all possible strings so so there there's this this is one one option the other option is you basically train a language understanding model on on the system outputs which which is what basically multiple people have done and that even could help you to kind of like train your NLG model better if you if you know what you know what outputs you're you're getting from it and 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 use that like to for example to augment your training set by like correctly generated generated outputs
0: so what you mean by that is you're going to train a system to predict the meaning representation from the utterance
2: yes yes
0: yeah Let's come back to that. I think that's really interesting. There was one thing that you said earlier that I want to ask about. You said that um, you can use string match kinds of things to automatically evaluate this, except uh, your data collection used pictures to try to get away from exact string match. So it seems like this actually, if the data is good, the, the better the data is, the worse these metrics actually work. Is that is that fair?
2: yeah it it actually make made it harder to to come up with the correct patterns and i mean i when i was you know l- l- trying to to do exactly that to to come up with the with the patterns i had to go manually through like a relatively large portion of the data to see what all the different patterns are and i'm pretty sure i didn't get all of them so you know you always will have some kind of noise in this evaluation Right okay.
1: Yeah no that's a, that is a really good point um so for example we had um people saying really creative things because we showed them these pictures for example there would the underlying meaning representation where the cuisine was french they would say oh this is a restaurant serving wine and cheese right because that was on the picture um so that is something you know which yeah you need to recover from your from your data set if you want to do exact string matching
0: right okay, so coming back to this idea of um learning a, a system to recover information from the utterance, I've heard this idea a few times i'm not I'm not sure how much it's actually used, but just the general idea you could do this for machine translation you could do it for a bunch of different things um I'll I'll describe it how I've seen it in like machine translation kinds of stuff and we can compare notes about how people do it in this um E to E generation setting. Um so if I have a machine translation system that I want to evaluate, one thing that I could do, let's say I'm translating into English, I could I could take Squad, the Stanford question answering dataset for reading comprehension, and I could take my translation system and translate the paragraphs and the question from my foreign language into English. And then I could say, given this translation, am I able to answer the question as well as I could answer it with my with my system that was just trained on English? Right. Um, you might want to be a little bit careful, like maybe only do the paragraph, or maybe only do the question, like there are different things you could do. But this is the basic idea. Like I, I want to test my machine translation system's ability to re- to retain the semantics um, of the thing that I'm translating. And this this presupposes uh like you have to have a a french version of squad in order to translate it into english so you have to like have parallel question answering corpora in some sense but if you have that then you can imagine um evaluating your system on how well it 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 retains the information that you need to do this end task and i think this is basically the same idea as what you were saying it's just on the using or trying to recover meaning representations instead of trying to answer questions is this fair? Is this the same thing?
2: Yeah, I suppose in a, in a way. I mean, here you, the the meaning representation is very well defined. It's basically like what you start with in the in the NLG process. So you can kind of go back and look if you you know if you, what you generated equals to to what you started with. So it's it's probably like better defined than than in, in Squad, where I suppose the answer is usually like just a phrase or or. A single word or something like that. When you when you have like a whole paragraph of text to to support it, so so here you have the meaning representation for like just like a sentence or two. So it's like far more fine grained. Yeah, and and easier. Like I, to be clear, I'm not I'm not aware of anyone actually
0: doing the translation evaluation that I that I that I mentioned. I've I've seen people talk about it, and I think people have done it in simpler settings. Right. It, this whole idea though that let's stick with a meaning representation version this still assumes that I have a parser that goes from the utterance to the meaning representation and now my the the evaluation of my generation is dependent on the quality of my parser in some way yeah exactly which which seems a little bit unfortunate
2: i mean i mean your parser can can you know involve this string matching is, is what we we talked about but there there were a few people who actually used uh, this parser like like a machine learning trained parser for for this but it wasn't for the final evaluation of your model it was mostly to kind of help the the training process of your generator so you would you would you know you would know when your generator went wrong and, and then then you could do something about it like uh for for one one paper i remember at inlg last year uh they actually had the, you know the 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 nlg system generate many more training examples then use the sparser to check which one of them were accurate and only use those accurate ones for training training further yeah i've seen
0: i've seen similar things in like question generation for squad mm mm-hmm. where you have this like loop that in some sense, kind of like a GAN, maybe, but you're generating stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it is kind of like, like a GAN. Kind of. In a way, yeah, yeah.
0: Kind of. If you wave your hands a bunch, it's not really <laughs> anyway. Anyway, exactly. um, so this is this is really interesting. I'm, I hadn't really dug into this challenge that you set up. It's really interesting to hear about all of these details. Um, so this was 2017. Um, what has happened since? Has there been any... Like, do people still use this data? Has there been more or other kinds of challenges? What's happened since?
1: So this data is still used, um, and people have even further developed this data set. Um, so at last year's ACL, for example, they introduced more structure to our meaning representation. So we already mentioned that our meaning representations were pretty much flat, and that's why, you know, these type of 6-to-6 models did really well. But at last year's ACL, there was a paper by um, Facebook where they basically included some discourse structure into our meaning representation. So, for example, we often had things like comparisons or contrasts where people would say, well, this is a, you know, like a, a expensive restaurant. However, um, it's not child friendly or something like that. So they annotated these type of discourse representations and they showed that by annotating this, they got, um, better outputs in terms of they were more accurate and also more fluent. But they obviously also had this extra step of annotation which they required.
0: Um, just to understand what what it is exactly you're saying. So they took the original data, same five thousand or something meaning representations and fifty thousand or something utterances. And you're not re-collecting utterances. You're saying, let me look at the discourse phenomena the hedging or whatever that happens in the utterances and actually annotate them in the meaning representation.
1: Yeah, exactly. This means
0: I have to, I I also have to annotate them at test time. Otherwise, how do I know what, what, what to generate from? Right. So you're giving the system more information at test time and then seeing if you can generate better. It's more information about the input, which,
2: which is, which is, which is nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, this is what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's like, yeah, more more constraining the generation to hopefully get more accurate outputs, which is what they what they were showing in the, in the paper.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Pretty clear that if you give it this additional insight of other stuff that goes on in language, you should be able to generate better from it.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Interesting. Cool. I guess that is like a, a different version of the data. So it is like, I, I asked, what other data is there? Well, now there's this... Augmented version that also has discourse phenomena.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, so what, what obviously happened since then, I think the two main, um, events are, you know, transformers and, and pre trained language models, and people have used them in various ways. So, um, also last year there was a paper I think from William Wang's group which basically used a language model and a copy mechanism and then decided to learn when to copy from the meaning representation and when to sort of fill in the gaps using the language model and they were basically showing that using that you 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 need much less data and then similarly earlier this year I think there was a paper by Google last week or two weeks ago where um they also they they also had like a Dialogue Act representation and they, um, they used, uh, a GDP2. And then on top of that, they pre-trained on all available data sets, which are annotated with Dialogue Act. So multiverse, um, Frames, um, can't remember a bunch of them. I think in total it was like 400k. And then they actually, um, fine-tuned to a specific task. And again, you know, that was to, to show that you, you, need less data. What, what they didn't really address is, um, how to make these models more accurate, right? Because that was, I think, one of the main problems we found in the E2E challenge that, but on the one hand, yeah, you need data, but on the other hand, once you got your models, how, how do you constrain them?
2: Yeah. Great. Just wanted to mention that basically the, the stuff that I talked about combining language understanding and analogy, this is kind of also like a post E2E challenge result basically from, from last year. Okay. And there, there were like three different groups who were using very similar approaches to, to, to this. So this is something that people have been looking at lately.
0: Yeah. Great. So we're running a little bit short on time. This has been really fun there 's a bunch that I had thought of that I wanted to talk about, and we haven 't even had time to cover it. I guess my last question is what do you think are the most interesting open challenges left in this area?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of themes across generation challenges, so what came out of the e to e challenges there are also pa- there's also a paper on you know challenges in neural summarization and then there is a paper also from 2017 from um Sasha Rush's group challenges in what they call um data to document generation and basically the the, the three themes they all mention as well the data collection is a challenge um you know it's it's noisy data you're usually dealing with evaluation is a challenge it's not clear how you um you know what what are the right metrics to to evaluate this Um, Including human evaluation is a challenge because that's also usually noisy and highly influenced by, you know, your experimental setup. And then finally, I think there's also a challenge of that type of bias you introduce by doing the sort of reference-based generation, reference-based evaluation. So again, you know, it highly depends on the quality of of the data set you're using.
2: Mm -hmm. Great. And I would say, yeah, there, there is also a challenge in like reducing the amount of, of training data you need, which is, yeah, what the pre-trained language model approaches have been trying to do while staying accurate, which is still kind of unsolved. And also, yeah, trying to be a bit more diverse and, and perhaps even adapt to the user. So, you know, if, if you have a dialogue system and the user talks in a certain way, you want to kind of come closer to them and then talk in a similar way and this also hasn't been addressed much mostly also because there isn't really a good data set to to try and and work with this
0: yeah that seems like a really interesting interesting challenge i remember reading some phd theses on the on this topic like how do how do power relationships affect like i forget what the linguistic term is where you tend to use the same word uh like you,
2: you converge on vocabulary over time I think entrainment is, is like a synonym to that. So maybe that, w- that okay. one, I don't know. But yeah, yeah. There's,
0: anyway, there, there's a really interesting long line of work in this whole area too. And like, how does that apply to dialogue systems? Yeah, there a lot of really interesting things still to do. Well, great. This has been really fun. Um, was Do you have any final thoughts before we conclude or anything that you really wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet?
1: I think there's a lot of stuff which actually we sort of thought we could cover within this hour, but we didn't. Well, thank you for inviting us, and it was really good to talk to you.
2: Great. Thank you for coming on. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was really great.